Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins. The Catawba River is the region's lifeline. It supplies our drinking water, it serves as a producer of electric power, and it provides enormous recreational opportunities. But from time to time, the Catawba has found itself on lists of endangered rivers in the United States. As of the latest report by the Catawba Catawba Riverkeeper, looking at all 200 and some miles, the health of the river ranges from good to poor. That report was just released, and I think it deserves a more meaningful examination, so we're going to give it one this hour. We're joined by Brandon Jones. He is the Catawba River Keeper, and John Searby is Executive Director of the Catawba River Keeper Foundation. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So we've done a lot of programs over the years uh, with the Catawba Riverkeeper. Not you, Brandon. This is your first time, I think, on this program. But uh, many other of the of your predecessors have been here. But John, let me begin with you. The Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation is the only nonprofit advocate for all 8,900 miles of waterways. I keep getting different numbers of how long this waterway is. I guess that includes all the tributaries on the Catawba Watery River Basin. So exactly, give us a little primer. Remind our listeners exactly what the Catawba River Foundation does. Yeah, so we are the, as you mentioned, the only nonprofit water quality uh, environmental group uh, that is serving the Catawba River Basin. Uh, We are 25 years old this year. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary, and we're going to kick that celebration off this weekend with a a big gala uh, celebration with some of our uh, biggest fans and members. But we're really the the eyes and ears of the river uh, on behalf of the residents of this river basin. Uh, All these waters belong to the over 3 million people that live in the 26 counties in North and South Carolina where the river flows. And uh, most of those 3 million people don't have time to attend to the river on a daily basis, even though it attends to them on a daily basis. And so our organization was established to provide a voice uh, for those folks and to be a place for them to come together to hold polluters accountable who are not taking care of the river to ensure that the use of the river is being done thoughtful way. And Brandon Jones, you are the official Catawba River Keeper. That, that is your title. You are hired to do that job. What are your primary responsibilities? You're not a one-man band, I know that, but uh, what is your primary responsibility? Sure, it's an it's a honored and, and challenging job. Uh, so I'm our, our lead scientist and advocate. And so my primary role here is to determine what the, the best use of our, our time and treasure is. It's a big river, as you mentioned, it's a large basin. There's lots of water quality concerns. And so we really, I try to rank those concerns and really make sure that we're improving water quality to the best of our ability and using our, our members' you know, time and, and money as, as meaningfully as possible. And although the idea of having a river keeper dates back, I think, about 200 years to England, I think it first cropped up in this country in the 70s when a bunch of, bunch of Hudson River uh, fishermen get banded together to kind of keep an eye on the water quality of that river. When did the concept begin here, John, and why? 
Yeah, so the Catawba Riverkeepers roots are really uh, in the late 90s, the Central Carolina Council of Government was uh, studying a lot of things that the coming millennium was going to bring. And one of those was, what are the biggest environmental challenges? And a committee uh, at the COG uh, wrote a report that said, uh, the number one recommendation was, we need some type of third party entity that is nonprofit and not related to any municipal uh, government watching over the water because the quantity and quality of the water in the Catawba River Basin had uh, not been very well cared for. And uh, the Noose River Keeper up in uh, Eastern North Carolina had been in existence for a few years. And some of the folks around here heard about it, uh, asked uh, Rick Dove, the river keeper there to come down and talk to them about the concept and so in 1997, we were incorporated as the 21st Riverkeeper in the United States. And in 1998, on January 1st, we hired our first Riverkeeper, Donna Lisenby. She's been on this program many times, as have other Riverkeepers. Brandon, you're the sixth person, if I'm correct about this, to hold the title of a Catawba Riverkeeper since that day in 1998. And you've been on the job here since 2018. You're a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill and UNC Charlotte with a master's in earth science. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what you bring to this job. Sure. So I, I grew up here in, in Gastonia. Uh, so I you know, grew up on Lake Wiley and, and sometimes on Lake Norman. Um, as you mentioned, I, I did my undergraduate at Chapel Hill where I studied economics and environmental science there. Um, and then worked at uh, UNC Charlotte on my master's in hydrology and did a lot of work in the Beaver Dam watershed near the Charlotte airport and took a lot of measurements there. Um, I've also worked as a, a raft guide at the Whitewater Center, so I'm very familiar with you know the Central Basin and its water challenges. I've got a background, you know, both in the the chemistry side, the recreation side, um, and the economics of it. Because you know, as much as I would love to say we can protect every parcel of land, you know, it really is you know down to the economics and what we can afford and uh, what the best use of of each uh, parcel is. And, and although we've spoken about, I mean, we live in, in, in a water-rich area. We're not California. We have plentiful rainfall here, evidently, and lots of rivers and tributaries and, and lakes, et cetera, that we've created because we've dammed up the Catawba River in several locations. But people may be surprised to find how many times uh, the Catawba River, which is their lifeline, whether they think about it or not, has been on a list of endangered rivers in the country. In 2008, the Catawba was named one of America's most endangered rivers. In 2010, the Southern Environmental Law Center uh, named the Catawba Water Rebasin, which is what you supervise, one of the top 10 most endangered places in the southeast why, John, and have things improved or have they gotten worse? Um, I think the, the short answer is we have been uh, abusing this river for over a century. Uh, what does that mean? Our, what does that mean, abusing the river? So the entire region really was built on the textile industry and the, tech, the textile industry relied heavily on uh, water uh, that came from this river and its tributaries to both operate the hydroelectric units that turn the machinery and serve as the uh, toilet, basically, of their operations. So if you talk to anybody over the age of 
65 who's lived in this region, especially in the small towns along the river, they will tell you that they used to call it the Rainbow River because on the day that they were turning the dye plants over from red dye to blue dye, they just dump all the leftover red dye out the back of the plant and into the river. And that happened in Belmont and Cramerton and McGaddenville and Great Falls and all up and down this river basin where there's a textile uh, operation. In which, so, decade, in which decades? So that uh, textiles really took off here in the 1880s. And, okay. um, you know, like everything in America had a little bit of a lull in the 30s. But when World War II uh, ramped up in the, the early 40s, the textile industry took off like crazy. And it was probably the driving economic factor in the region from the 40s, you know, well into the late 70s. Um, all pre-Clean Water Act, which happened in 1972. And so, you know, just misuse of our water resources for a century is bound to lead to legacy challenges. And then, of course, in the 20th century, we, we dammed up the river in several places to create lakes. Uh, Mountain Island Lake is where we get our drinking water. Lake Norman, of course, was created. Lake Wiley was created. Uh when the river ran free, I would think it might have been healthier than uh, or faced less problems. Correct me if I'm wrong, Brandon, than it might if you dam up a river and keep the water behind walls for a long period of, of time. What has been the impact of the damming of the river and the explosion of our population on that river over time? Yeah, those two things really go hand in hand. I mean, you, you can't have a city in the southeast without reservoirs. Our groundwater is not cracked enough. We don't have these big aquifers underneath to pull large amounts of water from in, in one area. And so if you want to have a city in the southeast, you have to have reservoirs. Um, the Catawba, we say, is one of the hardest working rivers in America. Uh, over about 85% of the total drop from Lake James down to, the, to Lake Watery is captured in those reservoirs. And so there's very little free flowing river left. Uh, so, you know, we talk about the river, we are really talking about the heavily engineered systems of reservoirs that you know, both produce drinking water, hydroelectricity, flood mitigation. Um, but there's very little left of that, you know, original reservoir or that original kind of river ecosystem. Is that harder on the river, and is it more difficult to keep tabs on it because we've done what we've done to it? Would it be easier if it was still free-flowing? It's, it's just very different. You know, a free-flowing river is going to have different challenges. Um, it's going to be able to expand and contract. It's going to hopefully have a, a more stable floodplain. Um, but when you have a reservoir system like that, we do have some advantages in that, you know, we can stop the water. You know, we can potentially mitigate some of these big flood areas we can have minimum releases to protect endangered species and so I, I wouldn't say that you know one is necessarily better than the other um, but the fact is like we're not going to remove these reservoirs the major ones you know within our lifetime and so now the challenge is making sure that we're providing you know, the best water quality for both you know our current generation future generations um, you know and all the fonta and flora out there we're going to get into the uh, 2022 uh, State of the River report in some depth in a moment or two here. But I asked John a question, Brandon, a minute ago about uh, whether or not things have improved. And he did mention uh, some of the things that we've done to it over the last hundred or so years that made it pretty tough uh, on, on the river. Have things improved since the uh, Clean Air and Water Acts went into place? Definitely. 
across America, and I think this, the Catawba is no different, we've seen dramatic improvements in water quality post Clean Water Act. Uh, it's one of the most effective pieces of legislation ever put into, um, ever passed. Uh, you know, in, in later years, you know, we've maybe not enforced it as well as, as advocates like us, you know, would prefer, uh, but still an incredibly powerful piece of legislation that's still doing work. One and thing, since, can I add something to sure, that, Mike? Mm-hmm. One thing I would add to that is that is really the reason that we are able to be effective at all, because the Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act are unique in that they allow citizens to intervene on behalf of their natural resources. So if you have a concern about your water quality as an individual resident of this basin, you can file a lawsuit against the offending party to protect it. And that's a really unique uh, piece in the legislation that our organization uses on a regular basis to ensure that it is continuing to improve. And Brandon, since you have a, a background in both economics and science, I'm just curious because there are a lot of people who don't like these acts that that infringe on the <clears throat> the rights of corporations to do whatever the hell they want to do. And the Clean Air and Water Act uh, kind of put some restrictions on it, which we were told would, would ruin things and slow down the economy, et cetera. What has been the economic impact of putting those rules in place? We have cities with healthy populations, right? I mean, you have to have clean air and clean water to have a thriving population. You know, in recent years, in areas where these things have been scaled back, you know, we see, you know, challenges. You know, like what we had in Flint, we see challenges and asthma, things like that. So, it is absolutely critical that we have clean air and clean water. And you can't have a vibrant recreational river if it's polluted beyond belief. So yeah. I guess there's some, and you and you don't want a home built on the bank of a river that is uh, on fire as as it as rivers were in Ohio back in the 60s. We have to take a break. Brandon Jones is with us. He is the Catawba River Keeper. John Sirby is executive director of the Catawba River Keeper Foundation. And when we come back, we'll take a look at the state of the Catawba and its entire run from north to south in 2022. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on Listener Funded 90.7, WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Brandon Jones is with us. He is the Catawba Riverkeeper along with John Serby, Executive Director of the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation. Uh, Before we talk about the health of the river, according to the last report you folks have conducted, I I mentioned that we were on the most endangered, uh, the list of most endangered rivers on, on several occasions. And in 2008, uh, we were named one of America's most endangered rivers in that year, if I recall correctly, John. We were in the middle of a multi-year drought, and lake levels and river levels were incredibly low. I remember driving over the uh, 85 bridge over the Catawba and looking down and seeing hardly any water in the, in the riverbed at all. And we were all told to conserve water by not watering our lawns, etc., during times of drought, when these water levels decline, does that increase the impact of whatever pollutants you may be dealing with along the river banks? Uh, yeah, and I think that that uh, drought in 06 to 08 was really a wake-up call for the entire region um, because, you know, as we have now, we have been experiencing a long period of, of normal and heavy rain seasons leading up to that. 
And we're in one of those right now. We, we think rain is you know always coming and filling up our reservoirs. But in 2008, um, the city of Belmont was within a half day of not having any water because their intake was about to be exposed uh, right where you were talking about, just below right. the, the Wilkinson Bridge across the river. And um, because of that, the municipalities uh, banded together and organized the Catawba Watery Water Management Group, which is the 17 municipalities that take water from the Catawba and Duke Energy. And really the, the impetus of that was to ensure that no community ever runs the risk of being totally without water because either Charlotte Water is, uh, you know, flexing its muscle uh, for the number of people taking water in, or Duke Energy is flexing its muscle to, uh, you know, generate power. And so that has really been a, a, an important step. And, and we've been a stakeholder in that group and, and chiming in on the water quality side of things throughout the formation of that group. Uh, but the, but the, you know, inflow changes to our, our reservoirs uh, is going to impact everything uh, coming in and is going to leave things exposed that aren't normally exposed. Um, and the, the impacts on water quality are going to be felt from that. So let's get into some of these details from the State of the River 2022 report. This is a long river. And as I was reading about it yesterday, I kept running into different numbers, different figures. I've already mentioned that there are 8,900 miles of waterways in the Catawba Watery River Basin. Then I, I read that um, uh, the river basin encompasses 5,610 square miles. And it runs 239 or 225 miles from uh, tip to stern. To stern. I, which of these numbers are accurate? How big is this, <laughs> Brandon? All of them. All of them are mostly accurate. Uh, okay. So it kind of gets into weird, like cartographic um, kind of minutia. Basically, it just depends on how many of the squiggles you measure and how what resolution your drawing is. And so if you're kind of like cutting the corners as you were, as you do the river, you'll end up with like about 225 miles. Uh, the Watery River can be anywhere between 75 miles and 100, depending on exactly how many of those kind of oxbow bins that you track. Uh, the watershed uh, square mileage, though, of that 5610, that is, that is very accurate. Um, but you'll see the, the actual river miles would change depending on exactly how, which line they took through Lake Norman, for example. And for the purposes of this report, John, you guys broke up the river into five different sections, the North Catawba, the South Fork, Central Catawba, Southern Catawba, and the Watery. I think the water, we know where the Watery is. It's in South Carolina. What about these other four sections? Where are they? Yeah, so this is how our organization is organized, which is part of the reason we broke it up this way. Um, we have scientists on Brandon's team that focus on each of those uh, sub-basins. Uh, and what we found is if you're going to really uh, improve a particular section of the river, you have to physically have someone there engaging with the communities, asking questions, working on restoration projects and water quality improvement projects. So the northern basin is all of the waters above Lake Norman. So the river starts up near Black Mountain uh, as a little wet spot uh, in the mountains. And uh, so that would include Lake James, uh, Lake Roadhiss, Lake Hickory, and Lookout Shoals as a part of the northern basin and all the tributaries that flow into those lakes. 
Uh, the central basin is then Lake Norman, Mountain Island Lake, and a significant portion of Lake Wiley, and all of the tributaries that flow into those three reservoirs. The South Fork watershed is somewhat unique because it is a um, free-flowing section of river. Um, none of the dams on that section of river are operational uh, as far as being able to hold water back. And it is the largest tributary uh, of the Catawba. And it starts in South Mountain State Park uh, as the Henry Fork and the Jacobs Fork. And they come together near Catawba, North, or sorry, yeah, Catawba, North Carolina, and form the South Fork, which flows into Lake Wiley right at the North Carolina, South Carolina line. And then the, the Southern Basin is everything below Lake Wiley all the way down to Lake Watery. And that is a unique section because it also includes the vast majority of Mecklenburg County. Most of Mecklenburg County drains to Sugar Creek and Sugar Creek flows into the Catawba below Lake Wiley, which that messes with people's heads sometimes because they think Charlotte is north of Lake Wiley, but most of the water in Mecklenburg County uh, ends up in Sugar Creek and Sugar Creek flows into the uh, river just above the Catawba Nation. So, Brandon, each of these areas of the river have been given their own grade from very poor to poor to fair to good to excellent. Unfortunately, uh, none of them received a good or excellent rating, and none of them received a poor rating or a very poor rating either. So that, I guess there's good news, bad news in all this. And I believe this is only the third such report that the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation has conducted. So how does this version compare to previous reports? Sure. Yeah, Mike. So our board challenged me a couple of years ago with coming up with a, a comprehensive report of water quality. And they really wanted like a numeric score for the river, um, which, as you might imagine, is, is a bit challenging because it is such a large and diverse area. And to simplify that number down to a single score, um, you know, would have been a, you know, a gross oversimplification. And so we first divided up into those geographic subbasins and then divided uh, the actual score into different types of use. And so depending on what you're trying to do, if you're trying to drink the water, if you just want to go out on the jet ski, if you want to go fish, um, you know, those are, you're going to have a different experience. You know, those different things could be good or, or excellent or anywhere in between on that Likert scale. So what we did is looked at five different metrics on each of them. And so for each of those geographic areas, the first thing we looked at was monitoring. You know, what do we know about water quality in this area? Do we have good... Um, get a good gauge network for the amount of water and good sampling for the quality of that water. The second thing we look at was permitted pollution. You know, do we have large industrial factories discharging? Are, are those factories in compliance with their permits, et cetera? Um, the third thing we looked at was non-point source pollution, uh, which is a, just some jargon for everything that runs off. And so is there a lot of development in this area when it rains? Do we have you know, high levels of fecal bacteria and other things like that? You know, how does the water change when we have these big storm events? Uh, we looked at water quantity. So is there enough water to support you know, those ecosystem services and the people that depend on them? What's the uh, flood and drought resiliency of this particular subbasin? And then finally we looked at recreation. You know, is there access to get in the water? You know, is there access for kayakers, for motorboaters? Uh, can you, is it safe to swim there? Um, can you eat the fish there? You know, that kind of thing. Are there fish to catch? And so in each of those, we gave a score from one to five, and then you can see the summary there at the report. 
As I mentioned, there were no parts of the river that received an excellent uh, measurement. And according to have, according to your scale, to be graded excellent, you would have had to find no major challenges, and the river would have had to meet the needs of all user groups to be in the good category. And I'm not sure how many of them are in the good category. Not many. If any, yeah, well, well, I think one or two. Uh, you have to have at least one minor challenge would have to have been found, and the river would have to meet the, the needs of most user groups. How should we feel about the fact that no part of the river really ranked excellent? Sure. So some parts of the river for some things were excellent. And so, for example, like the Northern Basin, which I guess John mentions everything above Lake Norman, you know, that is excellent for both water quantity and recreation. If you, I mean, this is the Linville Gorge, Pisgah National Forest. Um, there is, you know, abundant water with little draws up there. There's pretty good flood mitigation. And there are miles, thousands of miles of trails and dozens of access points. And so for those two things, that area did score excellent. Um, the challenges up there, you know, there's not a lot of monitoring, you know, so it was fair. There's, you know, significant number of industrial discharges, which are out of compliance. So that was fair. Um, and then, you know, when it rains, again, we see lots of pollution, mainly from agriculture, industrial agriculture in those areas. Um, so, you know, it would be challenging for a watershed to score excellent in, in all of these metrics. It would really need to be, you know, less developed, or at least that development would need to have a lot of stormwater controls. And so we just don't see that anywhere in the basin. So you've, you've talked a little bit about the northern part of the river. That's the first. Let's, let's take it from the tip to the stern here. Let's, uh, sure. let's go with the northern Catawba Basin, which ranked 3.8, good or fair. Uh, the, it, it, did it rank the highest because it is essentially the headwaters? It's, it's, it's more pristine. The population is lower. All the things you just talked about, like fewer draws, or maybe less industrial pollution, is that why it ranked highest? And if it didn't, would you be even more concerned? <laughs> yes. Uh, so the headwaters are, you know, they're both the most protected. Uh, so it has the, the greatest amount of uh, forested and protected land in there. So that's great for water quality. Um, it's got one of the lower populations. And so, again, that's, that's good for water quality. People have trash and they need roads and buildings and everything else, which can impact it. Um, and, yeah, there's nothing above it flowing in you know, bringing in that initial pollution. So everything there is you know, kind of self-generated. And so I would generally in most watersheds expect the headwaters to have the greatest water quality or greatest water quality. And that is the case in the Catawba. And John, Brandon talked a minute ago about the lack of monitoring. In fact, in the report, the greatest threat to this highest ranked portion of the river appeared to be the lack of monitoring and also development along the banks of the river. You guys, the, the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation, uh, monitor the river. Why is there a lack of monitoring? Um, partly because of uh, county and municipal funding. Um, these are fairly small municipalities and fairly small counties. And so without um, state and federal requirements to do so, they're not gonna deploy resources on their own uh, accord to you know, check every site that they should be you know, monitoring throughout their region. Um, that's part of our role. Uh, we opened an office in Morganton uh, in uh, 2022. And part of the reason was that we could be closer to the least monitored section of the river basin. We, have, we are uh, building out a, a state certified lab in Morganton and 
intend to be able to ramp up the monitoring significantly in that area. Because as Brandon mentioned, it's also one of the most popular recreation areas our entire river basin. So people from Charlotte and Asheville and Raleigh and Winston love to go to the mountains, love to go to Lake James State Park. And it's ranked excellent for recreation, one of the few areas that is ranked excellent for recreation. Uh, and, and also, uh, you, you report that the uh, Northern Catawba Basin Protection and Restoration Plan has been completed. Is that your plan? And is it, is it, is it in, in motion right now? Is it, it, have you enacted it? Yes, we have. So we applied uh, almost two years ago now uh, for an NC Land and Water Fund, a grant, um, to hire a staff member to create a restoration plan for the Northern Basin. So we needed, we knew, we knew we needed a staff member up there and that's Grant Buckner and he's our staff member there in Morganton that John mentioned. And for his first year, he went out and talked to all the stakeholders in the area, everybody from you know, the conservancies, the municipalities, the park service, and really talked through their priorities in those problematic areas. And then created this uh, prioritization plan as they have been applying for grants. And we've got two projects in the work right now uh, one of those is uh, Beaver Dam Analogs on the Canoe Creek, uh, which is a property that's owned by Foothills Conservancy. This is a, a new type of restoration technique. We're actually trying to reintroduce beavers and create a wetland. Um, there's also a, a larger restoration of Canoe Creek we're looking at. There's a 319, which is a, a federally funded grant uh, that we're looking at on Hunting Creek with the city of Morganton. So that is in the works and in motion. We're excited. So all of that water from the Northern Catawba Basin, which ranks 3.8, good to fair, flows into our part of the river, the Central Catawba, which ranks 3.2, fair to good. Uh, how, much, how big a difference is that, are those two rankings? It's, it's pretty significant, but again, it depends on your issue. And so I would encourage people to kind of look at the report and look at those different numbers. For example, if you're concerned, you're primarily concerned about water quantity of flooding and, and drought. Yeah, there's not a huge difference. We still have, uh, you know, really good systems. John managed with the Catawba Water Water Management Group, and there's you know a lot of water, uh, you know, conservation measures that are in place. And I think for water quantity, we're pretty good in both. However, if you're primarily concerned about recreation, there's a huge drop off. Yeah. Um, unless you own a motorboat in a lakefront property, it is very difficult to access Mountain Island Lake. Lake Norman and Lake Wiley. There's little places you can hop in and swim. Those places that do exist are generally very crowded. And, and we should say that that's one of the metrics that you use, the accessibility of the portion of the river that you're looking at. It has nothing really to do with water quality. It is your ability to, to enjoy the river. And we have very few places in this area where people can get into the river unless you have a home or a boat that's docked someplace on the river. Access is, is, although access is going to improve, you say, in the coming years. That is that true? Yes. Uh, through the Dukes relicensing um, efforts back in 2007, really, and it concluded in 2015, there's a lot more access points going in. And so those include new public beaches for people to go swim. Uh, there's two of those that will open this summer on Lake Wiley, uh, one on the South Point Peninsula and one uh, by the dam. Um, there's also some new kayak launches going in. And so those things are coming and we're excited, uh, but they were not included in the 2022 report. 
So we have an, an enormous number of people living along this stretch of the river. That puts uh, a, a strain on the river. We have a lot of impervious surface draining into the streams that feed the river. We have a, an enormous amount of water drawn from the river to supply our drinking needs. Is it really possible in this part of the river, the central basin, for for us to have a higher rating than a 3.2, given all the stresses it faces? And I have 30 seconds. Definitely. Uh, there's there's some, you know, some, some low-hanging fruit available. Some of the things will take time, and they're more systemic. Um, but I think it's certainly possible. And, and, you know, Mecklenburg County and the city of Charlotte, to their credit, have put enormous resources to addressing these issues. Some of those uh, efforts have been hampered by the state. Um, we can talk about, about that a little bit more after the break. But in general, yes, I do see water quality improving in Mecklenburg County. Okay, we'll talk about that because that's important. It's the first time I've heard it that it's hampered by the state. We'll talk about that when we come back at Charlotte Talks. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're talking to John, uh, excuse me, to Brandon Jones. He is the Catawba Riverkeeper, and John Serby is the executive director of the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation. They've recently released their State of the River Report for 2022, and we're going through that. And we landed in the central Catawba, which is our part of the river, with Lake uh, uh, Norman and Wiley and Mountain Island Lake, which is the lake we get our drinking water from. And you said something alarming a moment ago, Brandon, that water quality can be better, could be better, although it's being hampered somewhat by the state. Expand. Sure. Uh, one of the challenges that we have in urban areas, and this isn't just Charlotte, but this is you know every kind of downtown Main Street in the basin, is we have a lot of impervious surface, a lot of buildings, roads, and such that were built before stormwater regulations. And so these are big parking lots that don't have any catchments and all that water, that runoff, uh, that pollution just runs into streams whenever we get a storm. And so we see dramatic impacts from that, both from you know, flooding uh, downtowns uh, to sinkholes. Um, and of course, you know, just creeks that aren't safe for, for anybody to be in and don't support life. Uh, unfortunately, it's very, very expensive uh, to retroactively come in and capture that stormwater. It's, it's very, it's almost impossible to do. And so the best opportunity is during redevelopment. So when the parcel is redeveloped, uh, you're already you know, kind of breaking ground there. You can you know, either tear up some of that parking lot and put in some kind of catchment basin. You can bury a cistern. Um, there's a better opportunity to address that stormwater. And so many municipalities, including the city of Charlotte had a redevelopment ordinance in place, which said that when you're going to redevelop a property, Part of that is that you have to bring it up to the new and current stormwater code. Uh, in 2018, the state legislature passed a bill that's kind of snuck in to an educational bill uh, for Oslo County, actually, um, that disallowed that. And so municipalities were no longer statewide allowed to require upgrades of stormwater uh, mitigation during redevelopment. And so that's costing you know, not just Mecklenburg County and Raleigh, uh, but also, you know, in, in Gastonia or in, um, you know, Valdez or any of these other downtown areas that might want to require that stormwater mitigation during redevelopment, they're unable to do so under current state law. Mm. 
Uh, this report, <clears throat> the State of the River report, says that the data from all this monitoring is available, John, upon request, but it's not being uploaded to any national water database. So two questions. Who's keeping the data that we can request and get upon request? And why? isn't it being uploaded so that we have some idea of what water quality is like around the country? John. Brandon, that's definitely a you oh, okay. question. Okay, well, I'm Brandon, sorry. Brandon, go Brandon's, ahead. Brandon's, uh, uh, okay, all right. Biggest pet right here. Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, um, I was just going to see if John wanted to take a stab at first, but um, <laughs> it is it is uh, something that, that is uh, near and dear to me. Um, it's, it's not nefarious. It's not that people are hiding data. It's simply, it's hard. It is really hard to convince every organization to collect data in the same way and upload it to one database. Um, that, that database does exist. There's a national database run by the, the U.S. Geological Survey and the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, but I'll be honest, they don't make it really easy to get their data uploaded. Um, they've got a special little portal, and it's a pain in the butt. And so municipalities like Charlotte that collect data, they keep theirs in-house and it is available by request, um, but that's a kind of a tedious process. Most universities also collect data. You know, I was guilty of this. You know, my thesis data is you know, sitting in some laptop at UNCC, uh, like most of other uh, master students. And Duke Energy is the same way. They also collect data and it's available upon request and they submit it uh, regularly to FERC per their uh, requirements. But that data is not going to the national database where, and that database is the one that's used for lots of permitting. And so uh, as a passion project, I've been trying to, to push for everybody to get their own data up there, but it's, it's not an easy lift. It's technically very challenging. So in times of drought, the, the river expresses, uh, experiences a lot of stress uh, from various different reasons, but also we've been experiencing abundant rainfall in the last couple of months, and it appears that this, this may be part of a pattern going forward in this part of the country because of climate change. So when we have these really heavy rain events, uh, is that causing a different kind of problem for the river? Yeah, that's, you know, people don't think about freshwater inland lakes and streams being impacted by climate change. We think climate change, we think coastal issues, we think flooding along the coast, um, we think droughts in the west. But this is where climate change really hits the ground from a water standpoint uh, in our basin. Uh, because we have such a highly managed basin and we have 11 reservoirs that have a limited capacity even as big as Lake Norman is, it has a limited capacity. It can never go over the banks or be catastrophic to downstream residents. And so if you look back at the data, over the past 20 years, um, the NOAA data on an annual basis for rainfall has been about the same for the last 20 years. And NOAA is projecting that the annual rainfall for the next 20 years will be about the same. But what has changed dramatically is instead of a nice smooth bell curve where we have seasonal rainfall and then summer we have a little less and then we have fall uh, seasonal rainfall. Now we have these huge spike lines. So we'll go, you know, we'll have eight, 10, 12 inch rainstorms over a 24 hour period. And then we'll have three months of almost no rain. And um, that puts a stress on a managed system because those lakes can only hold so much water. And 
they can't fill them up any more full just because we get a huge rainstorm. They got to move the water out of the big lakes in particular. And so the impact is they have to hold down some lakes to be able to hold more rain to, to absorb some of those rainfalls. And then you have a lake like Lake Wiley that is unique in the fact that it has the South Fork coming in, an unmanaged river going into a managed system. And you sometimes create a, a perfect storm where you, know, you have riverfront communities along the South Fork experiencing massive flooding, even though they're flowing into a managed lake that's been drawn down. And so um, you know, climate change has real impacts and it, and it comes from these you know, dramatic rainfall changes that we're experiencing. So I have 10 minutes left and I have three sections of the river to go through. So now we've entered the speed round here and the South part, the South Fork part, part of the South Fork portion of this river is where your headquarters are. And yet it ranks the poorest of all the, the five portions. Uh, it ranks 2.8, fair to poor. Uh, that stretches, that area stretches from just south of Morkenton and Hickory through Lincolnton and Cherville to south of Gastonia. Uh, and why is it ranked lowest of all? That's not a terribly populated area when you compare it to Charlotte, is it? It's not. It's not. Um, but we have lots of legacy pollution issues, particularly around agriculture and land use. Uh, we also have you know, a lot of old legacy dams there that cause siltation and issues. And, you know, one of the things that really you know, drives this one down is that just, just not a lot of monitoring. I mean, we went out there and we did a lot of monitoring last year and actually reduced the rank this year because what we found is that the monitoring that we're doing is insufficient and that and during a drought or when it's not raining, uh, you know, on weekdays at you know, around four o'clock when I have to go grab samples, their water quality was, was, was largely pretty good. But then we, when we finally installed some like 24 hour sampling, we saw that you know, it really spiked heavily and quickly during rain events. It's a very flashy system. And so in order to accurately monitor that, you need more of those autonomous sensors. And right now there's one that we installed for the entire basin. There is a, 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 a natural resource in that part of the country that has become incredibly valuable because of the need for batteries, for smartphones, and now electric cars, and that is lithium. And there has been some concern among residents of that part of the area of, of the river about additional pollution possibly coming from the Piedmont lithium, an open pit mine that they're planning to build or were planning to build in 2021. What is the status of that project, and how concerned are you about lithium residual lithium or whatever they're worried about leaching into the river. Sure. So that project right now is waiting on state approval. So they were, they've already received their federal uh, clean water act, basically 401, 404, more jargon, but they received a federal permit to impact waters there. Uh, the state will likely issue one uh, by May 8th. That was the, the latest that I saw. And then from then it goes to county zoning. And so it's going to be up to Gaston County commissioners whether or not they want to rezone this project. As far as impacts to water quality, it's not in a great location. It, it basically cuts through um, two creeks and you're essentially working you know, in the creek level there. They're going to directly impact a couple thousand linear feet of streams and indirectly impact about 13 acres of wetlands. So uh, the project will have negative impacts on water quality. But that is similar to any other large development. It could be a landfill or even a hospital. Anytime you're you know, clear-cutting woods and putting in you know, large developments like this, you're going to have impacts to water quality. Can those concerns be mitigated by the proper development techniques? 
They can be. Um, the proposal we saw showed the mine you know, right up against, you know, within 30 feet of waterways. And so we would certainly push back on that. Um, you know, it's going to be up to county commissioners whether or not they think this is in the best interest of residents. And they're going to have to weigh a lot of issues like noise, dust, economic development, uh, things like that. But as far as water quality, there are things they can do to, to mitigate it, obviously. And we would you know, propose that if they are going to go forward with this project, to only do so under those conditions. And we can provide a list of those. So as you mentioned, the South Fork, Fork portion of the river empties into Lake Wiley, which then flows downstream into South Carolina, as does our portion of the central Catawba empty into Lake Wiley and go downstream into uh, York County and Rock Hill and further south in South Carolina, you would think then that these two areas, which have lower than the highest score, would impact the quality of the water uh, in the southern Catawba. But it's actually better. The quality of water there is better than it is in Charlotte. 3.6 good or fair. How is that possible? Explain that to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, the biggest jump there you see is the monitoring. There, we just have a tremendous amount of data between the Mecklenburg County, um, the city of Charlotte, uh, DHEC, uh, the Department of Health and Environmental Control there in South Carolina. They have tons of sensors. We have a good monitoring network down there. There's another group, the Lake Water Association, which has a water watch program, which is generating tons of data. So if you want to know what the water quality is anywhere in the Southern Basin, you can find it live. I mean, there are dozens of autonomous sensors giving real-time 24-hour data, and it's all publicly and easily available. Um, the other kind of big thing down there is there's better recreation. Um, you know, with the Great Falls project coming online, there's new access points, there's public swim beaches uh, uh, down on Lake Watery. There's, there's a lot more opportunity for you know, non-lakefront owners to access the water in those areas. But there is, the, an area, the water quantity. There, isn't, there is an area of concern uh, from lagoons at New Indy, which used to be the Bowwater paper plant, which we've heard a lot about because of the odor that that plant produced. And there was a million-dollar fine, I think, levied uh, because of the rotten egg smell plaguing uh, that York and Lancaster counties in South Carolina and Union County in North Carolina. But then concerns emerged about water pollution, the discharge pipe that had been permitted was not the problem. Evidently, the problem is these unlined pits in which they store waste, and that then leaches into the groundwater. In October, you reported, Brandon, that you didn't see any immediate concerns from dioxins coming from those unlined pits, and you said that water quality was being regularly tested, but the state newspaper in Columbia reports that these dioxins are cancer-causing. So update us on that. Sure. So we went out with DHEC to collect samples uh, back in October, and we sampled in the main channel. And so this is, you know, the, the free-flowing Catawba that, you know, goes right past the mill. And in those samples, you know, we did not find evidence of carcinogens, and water quality was, you know, what we'd expect it to be. However, we went back out there uh, with an environmental consultant uh, from the citizen group, and we actually sampled the sediment in the bottom. We sampled the groundwater that was coming through the, these unlined lagoon sides. And in that, we did find contamination. And so that's the basis for the suit. This is, should be very uh, familiar to your listeners if they follow the, uh, the coal ash saga. Um, but this is the same issue. We've got unlined industrial waste sitting, you know, liquid waste sitting you know, directly adjacent to a drinking water source. And so that's unacceptable. And since why, why, do we, why, why was it ever allowed? You know, I, I wasn't around in the, the 40s and 50s when they designed these, but I, I imagine at the time it, it seemed acceptable because, 
like I said, when you just test the river beside it, you know, there's a 600 to one dilution. And so for most analytical equipment, you're not going to be able to detect that. We don't have time to talk about the watery section of the river, which you say is very difficult to monitor because of the way it's laid out. And, and uh, a large portion of this are difficult even to access. And that goes down toward Camden, South Carolina, to the east of uh, Columbia. Uh, what are the challenges that you're gleaning from this report, John? What are the must-dos? Well, you mentioned that our headquarters are in the middle of the most challenged sub-watershed. That's not an accident. Um, you know, when we decided we were going to move our headquarters onto the banks of the river and out of uptown Charlotte, we decided that the South Fork was the place we needed to be because it needs the most help in the river basin. And so, um, you know, we... We are working diligently to try to get more eyes, ears, and feet on the ground in all of these areas and, uh, and grow our membership across those areas. And that's, that's really how we grow and improve these areas. And I have 30 seconds left. At the end of last year, State Attorney General Josh Stein awarded grants to preserve natural resources and clean air and drinking water in the Charlotte area to 23 recipients. You were one. You got $21,000. How helpful that will, will that be? How will you use it in 15 seconds? We are using that to help develop our state certified lab uh, to take more water samples all across the basin. So you're uh, relatively pleased or not pleased with the state of the river. How would you say it? Uh, good to fair, uh, but it's getting better. Okay. Well, that's good news. Brandon Jones is the Catawba Riverkeeper. He was here along with John Serby, Executive Director of the Catawba Riverkeeper Foundation. We'll check back with you from time to time, as we have over the past many years, since 1998. Thank you all for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com.